You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 12, The Great Depression, Part 2, The Depression. Uh, this week, a special thank you goes out to William and Richard, who have chosen to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. This week, we're talking about the Great Depression, and it would be an important event in many nations around the world during the 1930s. For some, it would cause large national economic policy changes to be made, such as the abandonment of the gold standard. For others, it would cause large changes in the political status quo. Each nation and its peoples would experience the Depression differently, based on their national history and their national situation. However, there were two important themes that would take place throughout the world. The first was that the Depression unleashed a wave of poverty and struggle upon the lower classes, those that had benefited least from the short economic recovery of the 1920s. The second was a questioning of tradition and the best path forward. This was done on both the economic and political level, and was also experienced at a personal, regional, and national level. A big reason for this was that the optimism that had exemplified the post-war years had been shattered, and for many nations, that optimism would not return before the Second World War. And if it did, it would often manifest in a very different mixture of political beliefs and national ideology. Today we will discuss the effects of the Depression around the world, starting with the United States, then to other nations around the world in Europe, Asia, and Africa. Then we will discuss the World Economic Conference that would occur in 1933, as many of the world's largest economic powers convened to try and coordinate actions to correct the economic downturn. I do want to emphasize that this episode will have just the briefest of overviews about the events in the various nations that we will be discussing. We will be discussing some other nations, Britain, France, and Germany, in greater details in later episodes. But for the nations discussed in this episode, there are certainly many more things that could be said about their experiences during the Depression, but those experiences are, in my opinion, outside the scope of this podcast. One of the problems that many Western nations would experience at the start of the Great Depression, and also one of the causes for how bad the Depression would become, was income inequality. For example, in America, a large percentage of all income went to a small number of people, with the top 5% of wage earners receiving 30% of all wage income. Income inequality is an incredibly complicated topic to discuss, and it's one in which the overall consequences of such inequality is still up for debate, or people still like to debate it. 
However, one of the ways in which this affected the American economy at this point in history was that there were large sections of the economy dedicated to the manufacture and distribution of luxury goods. And when the crash happened, a large portion of the wealth that had fueled those industries was taken away. The collapse of those industries would then lead to issues in other industries which cascaded into others, so on and so forth. Another consequence of the crash was the quick end to the amount of credit that had previously been provided by the largest American banks, mostly based on the East Coast. These banks were critical both to the functioning of the American economy and to others around the world. Domestically, they provided loans to the smaller banks around the country, which at the time made up the majority of the banks in the United States. Abroad, American credit was an important factor in the global economy, with American banks fueling much of the recovery of Europe after the war. The refusal to extend more credit to nations around the world would be one of the ways in which the American economic problems would become a worldwide problem. Much like in other nations, the American government and business community did not have a playbook on how to respond to all the problems that were occurring. There had been slumps before, but but nothing on this scale. This uncertainty in how to respond would result in there being two different phases for how the American government tried to respond to the crisis, which were separated by the election of President Roosevelt in 1933. During the first phase, the American government, led by President Hoover, would try to rely on private businesses and private industrial leaders and banks to kickstart the economy. This had worked in previous economic slumps, and it involved a lot of working with large industrial leaders to try and find a way with minimal government oversight and control to fix the economy. The second phase would begin after President Roosevelt came into office in 1933. Roosevelt and his advisors had a very different view on how the government should be acting and what the best message would be to try and fix the problems that the United States was experiencing. These ideas would be turned into the New Deal, a large package of regulatory changes, economic policy changes, and the creation of new government programs to try and boost the American economy. Roosevelt would then tank the United States off the gold standard, a step that many other nations, like the British Empire, had already done. When the Americans went off the gold standard, imports were more expensive, and exports were cheaper. And it also made American-made products more appealing for domestic consumption, due to them being relatively cheaper than anything that was brought into the country. There would also be moves by the government to try and restrict the amount of imports that were coming into the country, in hopes of further boosting domestic output. During the Depression, unemployment in the United States would greatly increase, and coupled with other environmental factors, it would be a very rough period for many Americans. It was a period where middle and lower class Americans would experience prolonged poverty, which would alter their mindset and outlook for generations to come. However, the overall efficacy of the government's actions along the way are are still a hotly debated topic. I'm not even close to qualified enough to interpret all of the economic data and trends and decisions that are involved in these changes, but I have read quite a bit from people who seem to know what they're talking about, so here is my basic evaluation. There were a lot of challenges when trying to determine how effective the efforts of Hoover and Roosevelt and their respective governments were in response to the Depression. Part of the problem is that the Depression was an unprecedented point in history, so it's essentially impossible to properly compare it to any other event where a different governmental response was present. The second major problem is that when making national economic policy changes, the economy does not just instantly change. A change that is made at one point may not be felt for months, years, decades, and so trying to ascribe specific improvements or regressions to specific policies is very challenging. 
On top of these issues, which would be difficult to begin with, discussion about the Depression in America has become, let's call it, politically charged. All discussions about history contain some level of bias. That's just how this all works. But the analysis of the Depression by Americans can be tinged with more bias than usual, at least in my experience. Not to fall too deep into modern politics, but the role of government in the economy is still, in the year 2020, a hotly debated topic among American politicians. And the New Deal is one of the largest government interventions in history. This has caused historians, economists, and let's call them non-academic political writers to dive into analysis with gusto, sometimes in the hopes of justifying their own modern-day views. I don't feel like I can tell you if the actions of the American government during the Depression at any point were the right choices. All I know is that the American economy, for most of the 1930s, was going through a catastrophic depression. And it was a depression that was not just contained within their borders, and it would instead spread throughout the entire world. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most important ways in which the American Depression was communicated to other nations around the world was through the reduction in the amount of credit being offered for foreign investments. There was, overall, a huge reduction in the spending level in many American companies, which resulted in less production and more unemployment. As everybody tried to extract themselves from non-liquid investment vehicles, there was then suddenly a cash shortage, which made it relatively expensive to lend money. This was felt more acutely by commodity markets, both in the United States and around the world. In less developed nations, which had been dependent on American credit to finance both short-term loans and long-term investments, suddenly they had nowhere to go. 
Then they too experienced a liquidity crisis as they quickly depleted their resources of foreign currency and gold that they had previously used to purchase foreign goods. Nations were then forced, through this lack of available foreign currency, to cut their imports, which they had already been forced to do as the producer countries had already started cutting production, and this meant that their exports were more expensive. These trends then began to greatly reduce international trade, with international trade among the top 75 countries dropping two-thirds between 1929 and 1933. Many nations, especially those that were still on the gold standard, found that they were simply running out of money. The gold standard was supposed to prevent these types of problems from occurring, but the erection of trade barriers by many nations meant that free movement of trade was now impossible, and so the whole system began to fall apart under the strain of the Depression. The easiest way for a government to fix the problem of simply not having enough liquid assets would be to devalue their currency. By devaluing the currency, a nation could print more money and it could make its exports much cheaper on the international market and make imports more expensive. The hope was that such a move would be more effective than the actions that had already been taken to try and achieve the same goal, which were import tariffs and export subsidies. There were, however, two problems involved with devaluation. The first was that just because a nation's exports were cheaper did not mean that there was more demand for those goods. In a worldwide economic crisis like the Great Depression, there often was simply no other nation that could absorb large amounts of fresh imports, and this made most exports inelastic, which meant that even if they got cheaper, they would not necessarily be in greater demand. On the flip side, the demand for some imports might not lessen even if the price was made to be greatly more expensive with oil being a good example of an inelastic good in many countries. The second possible problem with devaluation was that when a nation devalued, it almost always meant that they would experience some amount of inflation. For many governments, inflation was a dirty word, as it had been so damaging to the economies of Europe and, and others in the world during the 1920s. However, there were benefits to inflation which some nations would take advantage of. For example, the United States would purposefully induce some inflation when the nation devalued in 1933, in the hopes that it would restart the economy. Even if there were risks involved with devaluation, it was still hugely beneficial for many nations. It was most beneficial for nations that were economically and politically strong. For example, when Britain and, and the British Empire went off the gold standard in 1931 and devalued the pound, it would lose one-third of its value within a year. However, the British Empire was large enough that it could influence other nations and bring those nations with it off the gold standard, and nations in Europe and around the world, including the empire, would peg their currency to the British pound instead of to gold. Similarly, when America devalued in 1933, most nations in Latin and South America would follow them. This created currency blocks around the world, within which trade flowed more freely but as a whole, they still had the ability to move the value of that currency in relation to others. Some nations would not move towards devaluation as quickly, and some would stay on the gold standard for several more years. These nations were led by France and other European continental powers like Germany and Poland, but they would still work around some of the constraints of the gold standard, erecting more and more trade barriers both around themselves and around the world to try and counteract some forces harmful to their national economies. While nations and governments around the world would all react to the Depression differently, there were some similarities uh, with experiences by people around the world, and perhaps the strongest similarity shared by all nations 
was that the poor would pair the greatest hardship due to the Depression. In many nations with large rural poor populations of agricultural workers, they were often stuck in a position with crops that they could no longer sell, some of which had been grown solely as cash crops for export markets that were no longer available. This was the situation in Africa, for example, where there had been strong pressure during the 1920s for African farmers to grow crops for export, but then those crops became worthless. A similar situation happened in Japan, where the price of rice and other crops fell by as much as 40%, and luxury goods like silk had their markets collapse seemingly overnight. There were similar stories in many nations around Europe, Asia, and Africa. In all cases, the poor, both urban and rural, simply did not have the economic resources to pivot in any meaningful way. They were stuck where they were, and those that had jobs often lost them. Many nations would try to help with changes to how unemployment benefits were provided by the government or created those unemployment programs in the first place. But there were many nations that simply did not have their resources to properly assist their citizens. Even the nations that did have the ability often found that the scale of the problem was simply staggering. One nation that we're going to dive a bit deeper into here is China. I, I find the experience of China during this period to be really interesting. And that interest starts in the fact that while China was part of the gold standard, they would use silver as their currency. But China did not actually mine any significant amount of silver domestically. And so they were always wholly dependent on importing silver from international markets. One other related fact that I have to mention here because it's, it's interesting. At this point in history, there were many silver coins in circulation in China that were not actually minted in China, but instead in Mexico. This is because during the last half of the 19th century, the Mexican silver dollar, which was known for its high-quality silver and its uniform size, was used in many nations as far afield as China and Japan, and as close to Mexico as Central and South America. Eventually, many of these nations would move off of silver as, as a method of exchange, but China would not. And so by the time of the Great Depression, so the, the 1930s, there were still many Mexican silver dollars being used in China, which occasionally gets brought up in books, which is why I had to dig into it. During the decades before the Depression, the same types of economic growth that was occurring in other nations also occurred in China. There was in general some level of inflation, but a massive increase in the profits within the country and the overall productivity of the economy. This meant that these trends were, just like in other nations, taken for granted, and large portions of some industries, like the textile industry, were fueled strictly by credit financing. When the Depression hit the country, it became a really good case study for some of the problems that a high reliance on credit could cause in rural areas. Basically, when the prices for agricultural products like wheat cratered, losing 40% of their value between 1931 and 1933, the rural Chinese farmers found that they could not continue to take out more credit. However, the price of necessities that they had to buy did not decrease at the same rate as the commodities did. This meant that at a macro level, a huge amount of silver was extracted from these rural areas in China and funneled into urban areas, especially those responsible for manufacturing and the import of foreign goods. The lack of currency in rural areas and in rural banks made credit even harder to obtain, making the entire rural economy very brittle because of its reliance on credit as a way of financing through years of poor harvests. When floods and droughts were experienced, like there were in many areas of China during the early 1930s, the rural population had nowhere to turn. 
And layered on top of these economic problems, and partially a cause for some of the inability of rural banks to stay solvent, was the ever-present military confrontation between the nationalists and the communists. This had the effect of making investment in rural areas seem very risky, which reduced the desire of businesses and even the government to make large investments in those areas, even when they could see that it was necessary. Urban business leaders and the government were not blind to the problems being experienced in those rural areas, but they did not necessarily jump into ways of assisting them, and soon those problems would spread to every facet of the Chinese economy. After the start of the Depression in other nations, the price of silver in those nations dropped precipitously, by as much as 50%. This caused the importation of silver to become very cheap for China, and large amounts of it were brought in as the amount of silver circulating reached new heights, in the cities, even as it reached new lows in rural areas. Nowhere was the presence of silver more impactful than in Shanghai, where the abundance of currency fueled a boom in real estate speculation, a drop in interest loan rates, and a greatly expanded bank of credit available for lending. But then the British and the United States went off the gold standard, and their currencies devalued in the process. This began to reverse the trend, and silver became more expensive in those nations, and silver began to flow out of China. This movement was greatly accelerated when the United States began to mint new silver coins after the Silver Act was enacted. Soon silver currency, which was once everywhere, began to be in short supply. In late 1935, this caused the Chinese government to begin to plan and prepare for coming off of the gold standard and begin to de-emphasize silver as a currency. This was tricky business, because it was very likely that if silver was removed from the economy too quickly, there would be a financial panic as people frantically tried to withdraw their silver from banks. Instead, a more measured approach was enacted, slowly printing more money and draining silver from the economy over time. Initially, there were some benefits to this approach, and as foreign exchange rates stabilized, and with other nations beginning to recover in the second half of the 1930s, foreign investment began to return to China. Unfortunately, even if these plans were well laid, they could not take into account both local and global events. The Chinese government would always find that it was short on cash, and then violence would continue throughout the country, and then the Second Sino-Japanese War would begin in earnest in 1937, derailing any nascent recovery that was present. While many of the actions taken by nations around the world, like the United States and China, were done so purely for national reasons, and at times for selfish national reasons, knowingly at the cost of the ability of other nations to respond, there were attempts at international cooperation. One of these was the World Economic Conference, or the London Economic Conference, which would take place during June and July of 1933. This period was, for many nations, the depths of the Depression, but of course they did not know that at the time. It also caught many nations at an inopportune moment. For the United States, it was just a few months after Roosevelt had taken office and started the nation down a very different path in terms of response to the crisis. Britain had exited the gold standard in 1931, and was by 1933 experiencing the the beginnings of economic recovery, something that they zealously tried to nurture. In Germany, Hitler had come to power a few months earlier, with all of the ramifications and reform that this elevation to chancellor would entail. France was still clinging to the gold standard, and hoped that the conference would result in some nations coming back into the standard. Suffice to say, this was perhaps not the perfect time for an international conference involving these nations coming together to try and work together, but it would still occur. 
Eventually, the Americans would exit the conference in July for, for many reasons. The first could be categorized as nationalistic in nature, as the American leaders were unwilling to discuss taking actions that might inhibit the recovery of the domestic economy in the United States, even if it was good for the international economy. The second was more idealistic, let's say. Most of the people inside the Roosevelt administration truly believed that the programs that they were putting in place with the New Deal were the best way to fix the American economy, not just in the short term, but in the long term. Roosevelt felt that the conference was instead spending too much time and focus trying to do a bunch of what he saw as, at best, short-term fixes, something that he was not interested in pursuing, especially if it resulted in the domestic policies of the United States becoming derailed. The official exit of the American representatives from the conference was a blow to the entire enterprise, or as Austin Chamberlain of the British government would say, quote, There has never been a case of a conference being so completely smashed by one of its participants. The exit of the Americans would come right as the final reports from the various commissions of the conference were finally being completed. However, there was still uncertainty about what could and should be done about them, especially if the United States was not willing to take part in negotiations and the resulting agreements. Even without the Americans involved, there were still plenty of important differences of opinion among the remaining participants. The British were never going to go back to the gold standard, and much like Roosevelt, the British leadership was very focused on protecting their own domestic recovery. There was little stomach for large-scale trade negotiations, let alone massive international economic agreements. This meant that the most important outcome of the conference was, in some ways, a break in relations between the nations involved. The animosity felt towards Roosevelt and the Americans would sour relations across the Atlantic for years into the future. The complete rejection of the French desires for a return to the gold standard hindered relations in Western Europe as well. The conference would also be used as an example during the six very turbulent years that followed between 1933 and 1939 for why international agreements could no longer work and in fact were not worth spending any time on. Thank you for listening this week and I hope you will join me next episode where we will dive into much deeper detail about the events in Britain and France during the Great Depression.